Crime Happens contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature. It is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Happens, where we uncover the evil that surrounds us. I'm your host, Chris. Welcome back to Crime Happens. I'm still recording in Hawaii. As I explained in part one, you will be hearing roosters crowing in the background. Just pretend you're in Hawaii while you're listening, because if you were, this is what you would hear everywhere you go. Mahalo. In this two-part episode, we are covering the crimes of the first known internet serial killer, John Edward Robinson. You may want to listen to part one if you haven't already, In part one, we discovered that Robinson was a prolific, practiced con man. He was continuously perfecting his techniques and strategies for ripping people off. If he would have put forth the same energy and effort into making an honest living, he most likely would have been a very successful man. But he wasn't interested in making an honest living. He seemed to genuinely enjoy stealing from people especially when there were so few negative consequences to deter him. So let's dive right in. In addition to the theft and fraud, Robinson has now killed two women and illegally adopted out one of his victim's daughters to his very own brother. Just a few months ago, after killing Lisa Stasi in January of 1985, Robinson finds his third victim, Catherine Clampett. Catherine was 27 years old when she went missing in June 1987. Catherine had a young son and a drug addiction. Obviously, the two didn't mix. She left her son with her parents and moved to Kansas to start a new life with the help of her brother. Her brother was working hard to help her find a job. He even scheduled interviews with local businesses. But Catherine did some job searching of her own and found an ad left by Robinson. He put an ad in the paper for a job at his Equitu consulting company. The ad touted high pay, travel, and benefits. She called the number and was hired immediately. Once she got this job with Robinson, she started spending less and less time at her brother's, and he had no idea where she was. When she didn't show up for a week, her brother went to the police. The police did a cursory investigation but determined that there was no evidence linking Robinson to Catherine's disappearance. This was infuriating for Catherine's family. Catherine Clampett was never seen again. As of April 2021, she has never been found. Fortunately, Robinson was still convicted of her murder. Finally, Robinson is sentenced to four years in prison for fraud and parole violation. Instead of this being a punishment, it will become a training ground. It is here during this prison stay that Robinson would learn about the power of technology. He already had some experience with computers, but he was getting ready to take his knowledge to a new level. Robinson is 43 years old and just getting started. He is a father, a husband, a pillar in the community, a soccer referee, a businessman, a man who runs a full-time brothel, a man who hires women for S&M, a man who hires women that disappear. In prison, 
he was regarded as a model prisoner at the Hutchinson Correctional Facility. Almost immediately, he was enrolled in the prison's computer training classes. He was a great student and was quickly noticed for how fast he learned. He used the knowledge he gained to design and write new software applications that would eventually save the state of Kansas about $100,000 a year. He was so good, he could have made a very good, profitable career if he had wanted. While in prison, Robinson suffered several small strokes. As a result, there was some minor paralysis in his face, but no other issues. The prison psychiatrist who evaluated Robinson declared him a model inmate, stating that he was not violent, poses no threat to society, and he is a devoted family man. He recommended Robinson's immediate release. He wasn't released right away. Instead, he was transferred to the Missouri Department of Corrections, where he would complete his sentence. This prison also gave him more freedom to move around. While in this new prison, Robinson met the woman who ran the prison library. Her name was Beverly Bonner. She was 49 years old, and her husband was a physician in the prison. They became fast friends, and Robinson began working in the library to upgrade its computer system. It wasn't long before Robinson and Beverly began a romantic relationship. He convinced her that he was innocent and explained to her that when he was released, he had big plans for his future and she could be a part of them. When you look at this man, it is hard to understand how he was able to convince Beverly to leave her husband, who is a doctor, and begin a new life with him. But that's what she did. Beverly had been married twice, but wasn't happy in her relationships. Apparently, Robinson was able to sense her unhappiness and use it to his advantage. By February of 1994, Robinson was out of prison and back with his wife and kids. Beverly quit her job at the prison, divorced her husband, and began working with Robinson. Robinson was reviving his previous company, HydroGrow, which was supposed to sell indoor gardening kits. She told her mother and others where she was working and that her new job also included international travel. Beverly also opened a post office box and told her husband that since she was going to be traveling abroad, he could mail her alimony checks to this post office box. Her husband began sending her alimony checks right away, just like clockwork, $1,000 a month for 18 months. Beverly was listed as the HydroGo president on papers of incorporation. Robinson's name was conspicuously left off because he was a convicted felon. Instead, he used the name James Turner. Beverly knew Robinson was a serious repeat offender who had spent time in prison. She knew he was using aliases. She knew he was using her name to legitimize his business endeavors. She knew he was still married and had children. She knew he had not even started divorce proceedings of his own yet. But she didn't question any of this. She just kept doing whatever he wanted or needed. And when he asked her to sign blank pieces of paper, he gave her the same story he had given his previous victims. He told her that she would need to travel for work, and while she was busy traveling, he would use the letters to keep her loved ones up to date on her whereabouts. In fact, not long after signing these letters, her relatives started to receive them. They came from Amsterdam and Russia, and even claimed that she was on her way to China. The last letter her mother received was in early 1997, even though Beverly had not been seen 
since early 1994, which was right after divorcing her husband and moving to Olathe, Kansas, to work with Robinson at Hydrogrow. Authorities believe she died in 1994. Prior to Beverly taking off on the make-believe international business trip, Robinson opened a self-storage unit. He had rented here before, but he told the storage employee that he needed a bigger locker to store the belongings of his sister, Beverly, who was traveling abroad. On one occasion, he pulled up to the storage unit and was seen unloading a large barrel and placing it in the storage locker. He then locked up and left. Her friends and family had no idea what was going on. When one of her sons died and she didn't attend the funeral, everyone began to seriously wonder where she was. Was she traveling in Europe? Did she run off with a man? Was she dead? Because they were still receiving letters from her, they figured she must be okay and didn't call the police. It was in prison that Robinson really learned about computers and the internet, and it didn't take him long to figure out how to use the internet to find new victims. He began by finding BDSM chat rooms and hanging out there using the online name Slave Master. Prior to prison, Robinson was already developing his computer skills. By the time Robinson left prison, he was very technically savvy. In 1995, he owned five personal computers, three desktops, and two laptops. I spent 20 plus years in IT and it was rare to see anybody with that many monitors, let alone computers. Robinson used his computers to indulge his interest in the very dark aspects of BDSM and to find victims. He was interested in the master-slave relationships with whips, chains, dungeons, dog collars, handcuffs, riding crops, and all types of restraints. But Robinson ignored the BDSM guidelines that legitimate practitioners used, and he didn't use safe words. He gives BDSM a bad name. He had his computers all set up side by side, looking like NORAD. As soon as his wife Nancy left the house to go to work in the morning, Robinson went to work as well, firing up all five computers, monitoring chat rooms and websites, and cultivating new potential relationships with women online. Many of these women were lonely, desperate for a loving relationship, had financial issues, and they also wanted to explore the world of BDSM. Exploring BDSM in this way is risky, and this made the women extremely vulnerable. But. When you are longing for something or someone, you also want so badly to believe. So when Robinson found out what they wanted, he did his best to meet their needs, but only until he got what he wanted. He wanted their money. He wanted to use them sexually. The internet gave Robinson access to women who were perfect targets for him. He could promise them whatever they wanted and exercise control over every aspect of their lives all under the guise of a mutual BDSM master-slave relationship. This man is pure evil. He has absolutely no conscience. Sheila Dale Faith was 45 years old, and her daughter, Debbie Lynn Faith, was 15 when they both disappeared. It had been just one year after John Faith, Sheila's husband and Debbie's father, died of cancer. Sheila was grieving the death of her husband, and was the sole caretaker of her daughter. Her daughter was diagnosed with cerebral palsy as a small child and was wheelchair-bound. At the age of 15, Debbie weighed over 200 pounds, and Sheila needed the help of a special hoist 
to put her to bed or perform other activities. Despite her illness, Debbie stayed positive and was said to have a good sense of humor. Sheila, on the other hand, was lonely, and she also needed financial and emotional support to help with Debbie's care. In her effort to find Mr. Wright, Sheila would scour the personal ads as well as place them. She was honest about her circumstances and made plans to meet with some of the men, but things didn't work out. In the summer of 1994, they decided to move from California to Colorado, where Sheila had some friends. They only stayed in Colorado for a few months before moving to Kansas City. It was in one of these chat rooms that Robinson met Sheila Delfaith. According to her sister and a good friend, Sheila had shared her interest in BDSM with them. Sheila told her friends that she had met a successful farmer and he lived in either Missouri or Kansas. Robinson told Sheila about all his horses. He promised to get Debbie into an expensive school for the disabled and promised her that he would do whatever it took to make their lives better. Robinson and Sheila were getting serious about their relationship. Robinson wanted Sheila to move out to Kansas right away to be with him. Sheila told her friends she finally found her dream guy. Sheila packed up Debbie in her wheelchair but left most of her other belongings behind. She told family and friends that she would be visiting Robinson for about a month and they would go to Texas to visit family. Friends and family never saw Sheila or Debbie again. Former neighbors of Sheila's did find out that her mail was being forwarded to a post office box in Olathe, Kansas. Later, it was learned by authorities that the same post office box was also being used for Beverly Bonner's alimony checks. The post office box was being rented by James Turner. In fact, Robinson had picked up 152 monthly disability checks starting in 1994, which belonged to Sheila Faith, totaling $80,000. As he did with his previous victims, Robinson started sending letters to her friends and family, making it look as if they were sent from Sheila. One of the letters stated that she had met a wonderful man named Jim Norman. The letters all stated that she and Debbie were doing just fine, but none of the recipients believed these letters were real. Isabella Lewicka, 21, was born in Poland on April 11, 1978. Isabella was a Polish immigrant who moved to the United States a few years ago. She graduated from high school in West Lafayette, Indiana in 1996. She then went on to attend Purdue University for two semesters as a fine arts student. According to her friends, Isabella was very interested in alternative lifestyles, including BDSM. In the spring of 1997, she told friends that she had been hired by an international book agent in Kansas City to do secretarial work and illustrate a BDSM manuscript. She also told her friends that she planned to move to Kansas to be with this older man, knowing he was already married. He had agreed to train her as a dominant in BDSM relationships. Isabel explained to a friend that this man wanted her to call him master and that she needed to be very careful not to disclose any information about him or their relationship. She told another friend that she had a job offer in Kansas City illustrating and editing books and another friend that a man named John that she had met online was offering her a job, an apartment, and travel. Isabella told her parents that she had a summer internship with the publishing company in Kansas City. If it led to a full-time job, she may stay longer. 
On June 8, 1997, Isabella packed up her car filled with all her belongings and headed to Kansas. Her friends believed she was moving to Kansas for work and BDSM training. Once she arrived in Kansas, Robinson helped Isabella to get set up. He got yet another post office box and had both their names on the rental agreement. In February of 1998, Robinson helped her to open an account at Bank of America and he got Isabella an apartment. He put both their names on the one-year lease. He paid the rent with checks from Specialty Publications, one of his many companies. Isabella actually lived there for a year. When the lease was up, he got an apartment in another complex, signing a one-year lease. She lived in this apartment for the full term of the lease. They told people that she was his adopted daughter, or he was her uncle, and sometimes she posed as his wife. Isabella even went back to school, enrolling at the Johnson County Community College in the fall of 1998, under the name Isabella Lewicka Robinson. She told her instructors and classmates that she was married to an older man. But they weren't married. While Robinson had given her a ring and even paid for a marriage license, he never picked it up. They were definitely in a BDSM relationship, though. In fact, Isabella had signed a 115-item slave contract with Robinson. Their relationship was confirmed by numerous nude photographs depicting her in BDSM poses seized from Robinson's storage unit in Olathe, Kansas. It also appeared that the goal of Robinson's relationship with Isabella was for sex and not money. She didn't have any source of income for him to steal. Nancy Robinson discovered her husband was having an affair with Isabella. It wasn't the first one that she was aware of, but this one seemed different to her. She was actually afraid Robinson might leave her for Isabella. In the past, he would end the relationships as soon as she confronted him. In this case, his relationship lasted from the summer of 1997 to the summer of 1999, when Isabella finally disappeared. She never returned home and had communicated with her parents only through email. Robinson told a web designer that he had hired that she had been caught smoking marijuana and had been deported. Isabella's parents continued to get emails from their daughter until Robinson's arrest. The same summer that Isabella disappeared, Robinson started up a relationship with Barbara Sandre. He convinced her to move from Canada to Kansas. He leased an apartment for her and furnished it with items that had belonged to Isabella Lewicka. Robinson actually hired a moving company to deliver the furnishings and other belongings from Isabella's apartment to Barbara's apartment. Robinson was also trying to revive a previous relationship with a woman named Alicia Cox. She was unemployed and had no place to stay, but Robinson told her she could stay in Isabella's apartment. He told Alicia that Isabella had quit her job and ran off with her boyfriend. She declined his offer to stay in the apartment, but they came to an arrangement anyway. Robinson agreed to pay her as much as $2,000 a month, but she had to be available for sex whenever he wanted it. She was to be completely naked and waiting for him. He also had her sign a slave contract, which she did. The arrangement lasted two years. In the end, Robinson began the process of getting Alicia to move out of her apartment and prepare for a glamorous job overseas. He got her a room at a Best Western hotel. She applied for a passport. 
He had her sign the empty stationery to be used to update her family while she was traveling. Robinson spent the night in her hotel room, but they got into an argument because she woke up before him, disturbing his sleep. It was all very confusing for her. Eventually, she found out about Robinson's arrest. She realized how close she came to being one of his victims. After law enforcement began their investigation into Robinson, they searched the apartment Isabella had been living in. In one of the bedrooms, the wall was covered in hundreds of reddish-brown spots that turned out to be a match to Isabella's DNA. In 1999, Robinson had murdered Isabella Lewicka and started relationships with two other women. This, in addition to being married, raising four kids, running several fake businesses. Fortunately, he did not murder Alicia Cox or Barbara Sandre. As if Robinson is not busy enough, in September of 1999, Robinson buys a 16-acre farm in Lacine, Kansas, and he uses the property to store an old trailer on, among other things. In the spring of 2000, Robinson met Vicki Newfield online in a BDSM chat room. Vicki posted personal ads on BDSM websites and began to email Robinson. The two discussed a possible BDSM relationship, and he sent her a slave contract to review. Vicki was an unemployed psychologist from Galveston, Texas. She was in her 30s and had been exploring her interest in the BDSM world for a number of years. She was divorced and had two children. Vicki was lonely, broke, and looking for a serious relationship. Despite the fact that she had a PhD in clinical psychology, she was struggling with her own mental health. She was taking antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications. She placed an ad online stating that she had a spanking fetish and was looking to be a submissive for the right dominant male. Vicki received a number of responses to her ad, but the man who called himself JR seemed to be the best fit for her. He gave her his gentleman cowboy, successful businessman spiel, and she was sold. He also told her that he was not your typical dominant. He belonged to an exclusive group of dominants and was highly regarded within this subgroup. Vicky was impressed. He was most likely referring to the International Council of Masters. It was April of 2000 when Robinson asked Vicky to visit him in Kansas. As part of his claim to be a wealthy businessman, he told Vicky that he had a history of helping professional women get established in the area. He promised Vicky that he would support her and he would like to start a relationship. Vicky agreed and he sent her $100 for travel. She drove her car the 700 miles from Galveston to Texas with her dog. She arrived in Kansas on April 23, 2000 and checked into an extended stay America where Robinson had reserved his regular room for her, room 120. Vicky also brought along her extensive collection of sex toys as Robinson had requested. Police had Robinson in their sights once again. Anne had been watching him very closely. Unbeknownst to Robinson, they had tapped his phone and were aware of his contacts with Vicky. When she visited him in Kansas over the Easter weekend, the police listened in on their rendezvous from the next room of the hotel. Robinson wanted Vicky to sign the slave contract, but Vicky had concerns. They went over all her concerns and she finally agreed and signed. Vicky thought Robinson was intelligent, charismatic, and well-groomed. 
Prior to making this trip, Vicky did tell a friend what she was up to. Her friend was mortified that Vicky would make plans to go off with a complete stranger and insisted they put some checks in place to make sure she stayed safe. They made an agreement for her to call her friend every three hours. If the calls did not come, then her friend would know something was wrong and notify the police. Robinson forced Vicky into performing sex acts that she didn't want to. He took photos when she was tied up, despite her explicit instructions not to, and he slapped her much harder than she expected. These acts constituted sexual battery. Now that the contract was signed, Robinson was ready to get started. He instructed Vicky to remove all her clothing and to lie on the bed with him. She did this. Then he instructed her to perform oral sex, which she did. He told her she wasn't doing it right and proceeded to get out his camera. He then instructed her to get down on her knees while he sat in a chair. He began to take pictures of her while he held her hair back and took pictures of her performing oral sex on him. He forced her head up and down until he ejaculated. Vicky was not happy about the pictures and the way he forced her to perform oral sex. In fact, she was gagging and beginning to get scared. The police are in the next room listening to this entire exchange. Robinson suddenly got up and dressed, preparing to leave. Before he left, he showed Vicky the contents of a duffel bag he had brought with him. This bag contained heavy-duty sexual devices, including chains, ropes, leather restraints, collars, and floggers. He actually left the bag in the room. Then he left her at the hotel with only $50 and alone in a strange city for several days. After he left, Vicky wasn't sure she could handle a relationship with Robinson. He did finally return to the hotel on April 26th, three days after her arrival. When he came back, he asked Vicky if she had looked in the duffel bag. She told him she did, but she was very hesitant. And then he ordered her to take off her clothes and put some spiked heels on. Apparently, he was laughing as he said this. Vicky was getting increasingly uncomfortable by the minute. She didn't undress, and she didn't put on the heels, and this made Robinson mad. Robinson began to take her clothes off for her, and Vicky was scared. He ordered her up on the bed on her knees, and she did as she was told. Then he put a leather collar around her neck. Robinson ordered Vicky to put her hands behind her back. She reluctantly did so. He put handcuffs on her that attached to the collar. Vicky was used to a more controlled situation where she was able to negotiate what was going to happen. Robinson didn't adhere to the guidelines that people generally use in BDSM. He began taking pictures of her even though she objected and pleaded with him to stop. She told him if he didn't stop, she was leaving and going back to Galveston. Robinson got very angry and told her if she didn't want to do as she was told, then he wasn't going to help her find a job or anything else for that matter. After a heated argument, Robinson left. Vicky called him later and apologized. He accepted her apology and told her he would be over the next day to resume their activities. In the BDSM world, the activities that take place must be agreed upon by both parties, and there's typically a safe word that must be obeyed. Robinson began by slapping Vicky extremely hard. She got scared again because this was not agreed upon. Then he wanted oral sex again, but after the terrible experience she had the day before, she seriously didn't want to do this, but she did it anyway. Again, 
police were listening to the entire visit. They heard slapping and barking and had a difficult time trying to decipher what was BDSM sex play and what might be a serious assault. In the end, they found out that the barking was Vicky's dog and Vicky was okay, thank goodness. After Robinson ejaculated, he said he had to get ready for a trip he needed to take to Israel, but he wanted to discuss her move to Kansas before he left. He offered to organize and pay for her move from Texas to Kansas. He also asked her to leave her bag of sex toys with him as an incentive for her to return. Vicky agreed. She left behind her canes made of rattan and bag full of sex toys which she valued at approximately $700. Then she returned to Texas, but the movers never came as he had promised. On May 22nd, 2000, Vicky was upset and asked Robinson to return her toys, but he refused. Vicky filed a police report. She had no idea at the time that the police already knew about her trip to Kansas and her relationship with Robinson, or that Robinson was finally being seriously investigated. The family and friends of the women who had gone missing were all doing what they could to help law enforcement. The police did investigate her claim about the stolen sex toys. Eventually, they found her toys in one of Robinson's storage lockers. Vicki Newfelt is a very lucky woman. She was a victim of Robinson's, but thankfully, she escaped with her life. Robinson met Gina Milleron around the same time as Vicki Newfelt. Gina was currently an unemployed accountant from Texas. Like his other victims, she had placed an ad online looking for a relationship where she would be a submissive. She was into the BDSM lifestyle, but she was not into serious pain. It wasn't long before she received a response to her ad from a man named James Turner. He once again gave her his typical spiel about being a successful businessman who owned several companies. They talked about her coming to work for Robinson as well as having a sexual relationship. This was perfect for Gina, who needed a job and wanted a BDSM relationship. At this point, they decided that they should meet to see if they were truly attracted to one another. In May of 2000, Robinson made a reservation at the extended stay America he used for his past visits. He booked room 120 as usual. The hotel contacted police as instructed so they could surveil Robinson and his activities. Gina arrived in Kansas City on a bus and Robinson was there to pick her up. He bought her some groceries and took her to the hotel. They talked some more about a possible employment opportunity. He said he would hire her as his bookkeeper for HydroGrow and housekeeper. She wouldn't get a paycheck, but he would take care of all of her expenses and pay her bills. When he left the hotel room, he left behind a bag of floggers and cuffs for her to examine, just like he did with Vicki Newfelt. Robinson came back the next day for their first sexual encounter. He had instructed her to leave the door unlocked, be completely naked, and kneel in the corner. When he got to the room, he found the door locked and he was pissed. He felt that she had violated their agreement. Robinson proceeded to beat her viciously on the breasts and back, much harder than she wanted or agreed to. Once he was satisfied, he immediately left. He didn't come back for an entire weekend, and Gina didn't hear from him either. When Robinson did finally show up, he asked Gina for her social security number, which he said was for insurance purposes. Alarm bells sounded for Gina at this request, 
so she gave him a fake number. Then he gave her $100 and told her to go home and prepare to move to Kansas. He wanted her to close her bank accounts and put her stuff in storage. She did as she was told and they remained in contact via email. He signed off on his emails with hugs, kisses, and lashes. When it was time for her to return, she made the drive in her car from Texas to Kansas. She met up with Robinson at the guesthouse suites for a sexual encounter. He expected Gina to be kneeling in the corner, naked, wearing makeup, with her hair pulled back. She did as she was instructed, but Robinson still beat her severely, hitting her very hard on her breasts. Then he proceeded to take photos of the injuries and their marks. Gina didn't want him to take photos, and she certainly didn't agree to that level of violence. Robinson did what he usually did and left her in the hotel by herself. When she complained, he told her to go hang out at the mall. Gina had no interest in hanging out at the mall, and Robinson became very angry. He gave her $100 and told her to go back to Texas. At this point, Gina realized she had been used. Robinson had no intention of helping her with a job or having a meaningful relationship with her. Now it was her turn to get angry. She went to the lobby and asked the clerk at the front desk to show her a copy of the driver's license for the man who paid for her room. When she saw that his real name was John Robinson and not Jim Turner, she called the police. An officer came to the hotel and took her statement. It just so happens that the detective she spoke with was well aware of Robinson and was actively investigating him. The detective was excited to finally speak to a person that could provide first-hand information on Robinson's behavior and tactics. Not only was Robinson being actively investigated, but a task force had been created as well. The task force was more than 30 strong, and they took their time interviewing Gina. Remember Barbara Sandre, the woman he convinced to move from Canada to Kansas? He had put her up in an apartment and then furnished it with items from Isabella Lewicka. Well, they were still seeing each other. He told her that she should pack up her stuff and head back to Canada, leaving her with the impression that he would join her in Canada. So she left. Suzette Troughton was 28 years old when she met Robinson online in a BDSM chat room in late 1999. She was originally from Monroe, Michigan and lived very near to her mother. Suzette and her mother had a very close relationship and they spoke to each other every day. But her mom had no idea that Suzette was an active member in the BDSM community. She was into BDSM chat rooms, websites, had her own BDSM website, and even traveled out of state for BDSM dates. Suzette also had a couple of friends that she shared her interest with. One of these friends actually trained her to play the slave role. She often placed ads on these BDSM websites seeking a position as a slave. This is how Suzette and Robinson met. They began emailing each other and developing a relationship. Based on the book, Anyone You Want Me To Be, quote, Suzette was a healthcare worker from Michigan and Robinson promised her $60,000 a year if she would take care of his diabetic, wheelchair-bound elderly father. In addition to the $60,000 plus a year, Robinson promised that he, Suzette, and his father would be traveling the world together. She had no way of knowing that Robinson's dad had been dead for 10 years. Unquote. In October of 1999, Suzette went to Kansas City to meet with Robinson. 
She only stayed a few days, but when she returned, she told her mother she was going to take the job. In preparation for her departure to Kansas, Suzette completed a passport application and put together a list of family contact information. She also told her friends and family that some of the countries they would be traveling to, they would stay in long enough for her to take classes, so she researched schools in various countries. She also told them that she would be putting her things in storage rather than trying to find a place to live because they would be leaving on a trip relatively quickly. She described their plans to her mother and they sounded pretty outrageous. She said instead of starting out by going to Switzerland, they would stop in California first to pick up his new yacht and then head for Hawaii where Robinson could rest up and prepare for future business meetings. While Suzette is making her preparations to leave, she confided in her BDSM buddies that she was indeed in a BDSM relationship with Robinson. When Suzette arrived in Kansas, she checked into the guesthouse suites, room 216, which was reserved for her by Robinson for seven nights. He used his specialty publications company credit card. The reservation was extended for another week. The front desk informed Suzette that they had a no pet policy, so Robinson took her two dogs to a kennel for boarding. Suzette called her mother every day and kept her posted on her plans. She called her mother on March 1st, about 1 a.m., to tell her they would be leaving early the next morning on her trip. Her mother never saw or spoke to her daughter again. She had also been IMing with her friend at about 12.51 a.m., and this friend never heard from Suzette again. At 11.30 a.m. on the morning they were supposed to leave, Robinson made a long-distance call from his trailer to his wife. At 2.15 p.m., Robinson picks up Suzette's dogs from the kennel, but she's nowhere to be seen. At 2.25, Robinson's access code was used to gain access to the storage unit facility where he rented two units. At 2.35 p.m., someone called Animal Control to come and get two dogs running wild near Robinson's home. They did come out, but the dogs weren't running wild. They were well-behaved and seemed just fine. The dogs belonged to Suzette, although it wasn't known at the time, and they were taken to a shelter. The dogs were never claimed, but they were eventually adopted out. At 3 p.m., a guesthouse suite's housekeeper stated that she saw Robinson loading Suzette's belongings into his truck. At 3.30 p.m., security cameras capture Robinson checking out and paying the bill. Suzette is nowhere to be seen. A few days later, Suzette's mother and father both received letters from Suzette. Her parents were divorced and living in two different states. They are both suspicious about the postmarked dates. The letters were postmarked from Kansas City on March 6th, when Suzette had supposedly left Kansas City on March 1st. When her parents contacted Robinson, he told them that Suzette decided not to take the job and left town with a man she met named Jim Turner. Jim Turner was actually one of Robinson's past aliases. Obviously, Robinson was lying about Suzette running off with Jim Turner. While she didn't end up working for him, records clearly show that she was listed as the registered agent in the Articles of Incorporation for HydroGrow. Over the next few months, her family continued to receive letters from Suzette, but these only created more suspicion. The letters were typed. They had never known Suzette to type anything. 
She was known to be a poor speller, but the letters contained no spelling errors. Her parents didn't believe these letters came from their daughter. Her parents were right. These letters were sent by Robinson in an effort to throw them and law enforcement off the trail. Robinson found a service which will postmark a letter in such a way that it looks like it came from another state or country. He used this service quite a bit. He also recruited a former girlfriend to help him with mailing letters. Their relationship didn't end well, but Robinson kept contacting her. She agreed to help him if he agreed to stop contacting her, so she mailed the letters. Robinson was so devious. He managed to get into Suzette's email, and from here he sent emails as though he were Suzette. He started corresponding with one of Suzette's BDSM buddies named Laura Remington. She didn't know it wasn't Suzette and shared with her that she had left her current master. Robinson responded to her with a referral to a new master, giving her the email address to contact him. She did contact him, and he said his name was Jim Turner. Remington shared her exchange with a friend named Taylor, who was also into BDSM. Taylor asked Remington to ask Jim Turner if he had any single friends into BDSM. She did and he responded right away with a referral to a guy named Tom. Taylor and Tom began to exchange emails and discuss a possible BDSM relationship. They reviewed the ground rules and a possible visit to Kansas. He always signed his emails, Master. Lucky for Taylor, Robinson was arrested before she could visit. The task force continued to work with friends and family of Robinson's previous victims, They found Vicki Newfield in Arkansas and interviewed her. Suzette Troughton's BDSM friend, Laura Remington, had become suspicious and continued to email with Robinson while keeping the police informed. The task force continued to surveil Robinson, but when Robinson began putting security cameras up all around his home and on his truck, they suspected he knew. Laura Remington continued to maintain contact with Robinson online, So it was a surprise when he actually called her on the phone. She was living in Nova Scotia at the time. Neither one of them realized that the phone conversation was being tapped. When Robinson called Lore, he told her his name was James, although she had only known him as JR or JRT. Then he quickly turned the subject to BDSM. Robinson went into his role as slave master and began speaking to Lore as a slave in training. He began describing the instructions that a master might give to a slave. He discussed using electrodes on her rectum and vagina, telling her it could be fun. Fun for who? Laura continued the BDSM conversation for a while, but eventually brought up Suzette. Robinson said he hadn't heard from her, but had a private detective out looking for her. According to the PI, Suzette found herself a new lover, and they left together on a boating trip in Mexico. He claimed that she had stolen $10,000 from him. He went on to call her a thief and a liar. He called her a prostitute who gave blowjobs to pay her rent. He just went on and on, while Laura did her best to swallow the profanities on the tip of her tongue, knowing they were all lies. After making all these terrible claims about Suzette, he went right back to being slave master and instructed Laura that she needed to continue with her slave training over the upcoming weekend and this would include inserting golf balls inside herself. Gives an all-new meaning to the term, a hole-in-one. With so many balls in the air, so to speak, 
Robinson's juggling act is coming to an end. Up until Suzette Troughton, he had managed to keep his real name a secret, always using an alias. J.R., J.R.T., Jim Turner, James Turner, Jim Osborne, Jim Redman, and Tom. Suzette broke the sacred slave master rule of not sharing the name of her master and made sure her mother had his real name and phone numbers. Her mother wasn't aware of their master-slave relationship. It was Memorial Day weekend, May 29th, 2000. Robinson was hosting the annual barbecue at the Santa Barbara Estates Mobile Home Park in Olathe, Kansas, where he lived. He did the shopping and the grilling and was oblivious to the fact that he was being watched and photographed everywhere he went. Detectives were hot on his trail, but the DA, Paul Morrison, was still not ready to make an arrest. He knew this was going to be a big case, a difficult case, and he wanted to make sure they had all their ducks in a row. Morrison was terrified that if they moved too soon and arrested Robinson or searched his home, work, and storage units, there was the possibility that they wouldn't find anything and would have to let him go again. They really had no concrete physical evidence that he had committed a violent crime. What they did know was that Robinson had not slowed down He was busy working on two other women, trying to convince them to move to Kansas. These women were so vulnerable, and they each had a child. One was divorced with an eight-year-old daughter, and the other one was only 17 with a newborn baby. He promised them what they needed, a place to live, a job, someone to take care of them, and they jumped at the opportunity. It was this knowledge that prompted the DA to finally move in on Robinson. When adults engage in consenting violent sex, there's not much they can do. But when children are involved, that is a different situation. Children have no choice. They can't consent to a move or anything else. They are at the mercy of the adults. And the situation with these two women was eerily similar to that of Lisa Stasi, who went missing years ago along with her baby. The case finally broke when authorities who had been investigating Robinson for over three months arrested him for sexually assaulting Vicki Newfield and Gina Milleron. They had both gone to the police and filed charges of sexual assault. Vicki Newfield also added theft to her complaint. Robinson had stole her sex toys valued at $700. This gave police probable cause they needed to request a search warrant and search Robinson's properties. On March 25, 2000, Suzette Troughton's mother filed a missing persons report with Overland Park Police Department. They transferred the case to the Lenexa Police Department since they had jurisdiction. The report named Robinson as the last person to be in contact with her. It didn't take long for the police to discover that Robinson had a lengthy criminal record. Between the sexual assault charges and the missing person report filed by Suzette's mother, law enforcement decided to create a multi-jurisdictional task force. Robinson's crimes occurred in both Kansas and Missouri, as well as in jurisdictions within each state, so it made sense for these police departments to join forces. On March 29th and 30th, 2000, a forensic chemist examined the room at the Guesthouse Suites in Lenexa, which was occupied by Suzette Troughton, He found several small bloodstains in the room, but the search produced nothing of evidentiary value. 
Investigators partnered with the trash service that collected the trash from the gated community where Robinson and his family lived. With their help, on March 31, 2000, the Lenexa Police Department began searching trash left at the curbside for the collection at Robinson's Olathe residence. This turned out to be very productive. On April 4th, police found a receipt for a package which Robinson had mailed to a woman named Glines. Glines was the woman in California who mailed letters addressed to family and friends of his victims and postmarked from San Jose, California to throw them off the trail. On April 25th, they collected three bags of trash and in those bags they found a telephone bill for service at Robinson's Lynn County property which documented a long-distance call placed from Robinson's trailer on the morning of Troughton's disappearance. On May 22nd, law enforcement secured a court-ordered wiretap on Robinson's cell phone. One of the calls they intercepted was the one between Robinson and Suzette's BDSM friend, Lore Remington. As the police were getting close to dropping the hammer on Robinson, they used every tool at their disposal they went through his trash, had him under surveillance, used wiretaps, and finally search warrants. This ultimately led to Robinson's arrest. On the morning of June 2, 2000, law enforcement secured a warrant to search Robinson's Olathe residence and his Olathe storage unit. Robinson was arrested that morning just before officers executed the search warrants. It must have been quite a sight to see nine police vehicles pulling onto Robinson's property as they arrested him and began to search his properties. Police officers from Lenexa, Overland Park, Kansas Bureau of Investigation, and the Lynn County Sheriff's Office were there for the arrest. On the morning of June 3, 2000, law enforcement officers secured a warrant from Johnson County District Judge Larry McLean to search Robinson's Lynn County property. Robinson owned a farm in Lynn County, which is about 70 miles from Overland Park. The farm appeared fairly normal. They found garden hoses, wheelbarrows, ladders, and other items that you might find on a farm. They searched the pond, they tore up the barn floor, they took sections of the wall, all in an effort to find forensic evidence. The search began that morning and continued for roughly a full week. It was a scorching hot day. Officers were hot, hungry, and discouraged that they had not made any significant finds yet. Maybe they wouldn't find anything at all. Around 1 p.m. on June 3rd, based on the book, Anyone You Want Me To Be, Johnson County Sheriff's Detective Harold Hughes learned a cadaver dog had alerted on two yellow metal barrels on the property. The barrels were sitting next to a storage shed which was surrounded by overgrown grass, lawnmowers, and some blue barrels. The officers approached the barrels and eased them away from the shed by rolling them on their edges. Then Officer Hughes began to open one of the barrels. He immediately noticed a reddish liquid oozing out from under the lid. Hughes was joined by Sergeant Roth to open the barrels. They both recognized the scent that was now emanating from the barrel as the smell of decomposition. They began taking photographs of dead flies, leaves, and mold on the barrel lid. Using a pair of pliers, they removed the metal band on the barrel and pried it all the way open. The smell that hit them was so horrific, they jumped back away from the barrel. What they found 
was a decomposing body, its head pointing downward. There was about a foot of fluid in the barrel from the decomposition process, and the body was bloated and purplish. The flies began to amass, buzzing loudly. Next, they turned to open the second barrel. They followed the same steps again, and the stench of decomposition almost knocked them over. They found a pillow resting on top of the human remains. Based on court documents, the barrels were then transported to Topeka, where the autopsies would take place. Dr. Donald Pojman performed the autopsies. After the first barrel was drained, Dr. Pojman determined that it contained a human body. It was mildly decomposed, unclothed, and lying in a fetal position inside the barrel. It was a female with long, dark hair pulled back into a ponytail. She had her genitals pierced, and she was wearing nipple clips, which were connected by a metal chain held together with a butterfly pendant. There was a soft nylon rope tied around the head with a piece of cloth underneath, covering the nose and mouth, which Pojman believed to be a blindfold that had slipped below her eyes. There were two visible injuries, a tear to the skin near the left armpit, inflicted post-mortem, and she had sustained a significant injury to the side of her head, which actually fractured her skull. It appeared to be consistent with a hammer. It was an oval-shaped defect on the left side of the head, which Pojman believed to be lethal. Pojman concluded the cause of death was a blow to the left side of the head with a hard object. With the help of DNA testing and dental records, the victim in the first barrel was identified as Suzette Troughton. She was actually Robinson's last victim, but the first one to be found. In the second barrel, the victim was also determined to be female. The body was moderately decomposed and lying in a fetal position. She had long hair and was wearing only a sheer black nightshirt and partially covered with a pillow. There was quite a bit of fluid inside the barrel from decomposition and found floating in it was fingernails, gray or silver duct tape, and a pillowcase. Dr. Pojman observed two blunt force injuries to the side of her skull. Either one of these injuries could have been lethal. He noted that the injuries were similar to Troughton's and consistent with a hammer. Her time of death was estimated at six months to two years. She was identified using dental records as Isabella Lewicka. As a result of finding these two bodies, law enforcement kicked into high gear. They scoured every inch of the farm and the trailer looking for more bodies and more evidence. They didn't find any more bodies, but they collected bits of hair, blood stains, and human tissue. These were all found to belong to Suzette Troughton. They also found nine hammers. On June 5th, 2000, law enforcement officers executed a warrant to search the Store More for Less storage unit in Raymore, Missouri, rented by Robinson. Robinson rented two units at this facility, both under Beverly Bonner's name. He claimed that Bonner was his sister and that he was storing her belongings while she worked in Australia. The leasing agent at the storage facility recalled Robinson saying Bonner worked for an agricultural company with Hydro in its name. Robinson leased this unit through the summer of 1996. In January 94, Robinson leased a second unit under Bonner's name and maintained that lease through the date of his arrest. They started by searching the second and most recent unit rented by Robinson. 
they immediately found three barrels in the back of the storage unit. They opened the first barrel within 10 minutes of arriving at the facility. It was black with a gray lid. As soon as the lid of the first barrel was removed, they were once again gagging on the smell of decomp. Inside the barrel was a human body. There were two other barrels sitting in front of the one they had just opened. Law enforcement was pretty sure that these two barrels would also contain human remains, but they didn't open the barrels at the storage facility. According to court documents, law enforcement noticed that the two unopened barrels were covered with large plastic sheet and cat litter had been sprinkled around the outside of the barrels but inside the plastic sheet. Some of the cat litter appeared to have absorbed a dark fluid. The barrels were wrapped together with two additional pieces of plastic sheeting and held up with pieces of duct tape. Officers examined the plastic sheeting and duct tape and were able to develop four latent prints of value. The three latent prints matched Robinson's known prints and one was not identified. Based on court documents, all three barrels were transported to the Jackson County Medical Examiner, Thomas Young. Young conducted the autopsies on the body inside the first barrel, which was later identified as Beverly J. Bonner. According to Young, the body was curled up inside the barrel and fully dressed for cold weather. Young believed the body had been stored for a long period of time because most of her external features were blurred and the internal organs were hard to distinguish. The body had substantial trauma to the head caused by multiple blows from a blunt object with a rounded surface consistent with a hammer. Young stated that any number of these blows could have resulted in death. On June 7, 2000, forensic odontologist Ronald Greer confirmed the victim was Beverly Bonner. Next, Young conducted an autopsy on the body contained in one of the two barrels wrapped in plastic sheeting. The body was an adult female, fully clothed. Young believed the state of decomposition was consistent with the death having occurred five to six years prior, but he admitted no precise date could be determined. The body had multiple injuries to the head caused by blunt force trauma, consistent with blows made by a hammer. Young also stated that any number of these blows could have been fatal. He also observed a fracture of the right forearm, specifically the right ulna, which he testified to be consistent with a defensive wound. The body was later identified as Sheila Faith. Finally, Young conducted the autopsy on the body found inside the third barrel. The body was fully clothed and the subject was wearing an adult disposable diaper. The body was later identified as Debbie Faith, Sheila Faith's daughter. Debbie was diagnosed with cerebral palsy and was wheelchair bound, which was why she would have been wearing a disposable diaper. Young determined the victim was a teenager because the x-rays revealed that several growth discs had not closed yet. Again, he testified that the state of decomposition was consistent with death having occurred five to six years prior but admitted no precise date could be determined. The victim had sustained at least three blows to the head, each of which could have been fatal, inflicted by a blunt object with a rounded surface consistent with a hammer. Using known dental x-rays, the victim was positively identified as Debbie Faith. The bodies of Catherine Clampett, Paula Godfrey, and Lisa Stasi have never been found 
so there were no autopsies. Barbara Sandre is the woman who moved from Canada to be with Robinson. He got her an apartment and furnished it with items belonging to Isabella Lewicka. On June 9th, law enforcement officers searched Barbara Sandre's Grant Street duplex with her consent. They seized a number of items from the duplex which belonged to Isabella Lewicka, including two sets of bedding, an antique Polish coffee grinder, a Hungarian espresso machine, and a black journal with handwriting and sketches. Investigators noticed one of the sets of bedding in the duplex matched the pattern on the pillowcase found inside the barrel containing Lewicka's body. The bedding also matched the pattern depicted in nude photographs of Lewicka found in Robinson's Olathe storage unit. Robinson's 40-year criminal career is finally coming to an end. He is in jail, and the evidence against him is overwhelming. He is charged with the murder of three women in Kansas and five in Missouri. And, fortunately, he was convicted of killing all eight women. In 2002, Robinson stood trial in Kansas for the murders of Suzette Troughton, Isabella Lewicka, and Lisa Stasi, along with multiple lesser charges. After the longest criminal trial in Kansas history, he was convicted on all counts. On January 21, 2003, Robinson is sentenced to death for the murders of Isabella Lewicka and Suzette Troughton. He was sentenced to life in prison for Stasi. Lisa Stasi was killed before Kansas reinstated their death penalty. He also received a 5-20 to 20 year prison sentence for interfering with the parental custody of Stasi's baby, 20 and a half years for kidnapping Troughton, and seven months for theft. After his Kansas convictions, Robinson faced additional murder charges in Missouri. Based on the evidence discovered in that state, Missouri is far more aggressive in its pursuit of capital punishment convictions, and Robinson's attorneys were anxious to avoid a trial there. When it became clear that the women's remains would never be found without Robinson's cooperation, a compromise of sorts was reached. In a carefully worded plea deal in October of 2003, Robinson acknowledged that Chris Coster, the Missouri prosecutor, had enough evidence to convict him of capital murder for the deaths of Paula Godfrey, Catherine Clampett, Beverly Bonner, and the Faiths, Sheila and Debbie. Coster insisted as a condition of any plea bargain that Robinson lead authorities to the bodies of Lisa Stasi, Paula Godfrey, and Catherine Clampett. Robinson, who has never cooperated in any way with investigators, refused, but Coster still faced pressure to make a deal because his case was not technically airtight. Among other issues, there was no unequivocal evidence that any of the murders had actually been committed within his jurisdiction. Rather than risk Robinson getting off on a technicality, they went ahead with the plea deal. Robinson, on the other hand, faced pressure to plead guilty to avoid an almost certain death sentence in Missouri, and failing that, yet another capital murder trial back in Kansas. On October 16, 2003, Robinson pled guilty to the murders of Beverly Bonner, Sheila Faith, Debbie Faith, Paula Godfrey, and Catherine Clampett. The bodies of Paula Godfrey, Catherine Clampett, and Lisa Stasi have never been found. 
John Edward Robinson received a life sentence without the possibility of parole for each of these five murders. Though his statement was technically a guilty plea and was accepted as such by the Missouri court, it was said to be completely lacking of any remorse or specific acceptance of responsibility. As of spring 2021, Robinson is 78 years old and is incarcerated in Kansas. He's on death row at the El Dorado Correctional Facility in Butler County, according to prison records. He has been in the facility since January 24, 2003. To this day, he continues to appeal every aspect of his many convictions. Some of the lesser appeals he's won, but it's unlikely that his murder convictions will be overturned. And that will do it for part two, the conclusion to the John Edward Robinson story. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will continue to join me on Crime Happens. <laughs>